It's a privilege again to be here at Community Bible Church. It's a little ironic, of course, that I started with, hey, let's meet one another. We had this great prayer about unity and loving one another. And the actual content of the passage we're looking at today, of course, is one of conflict. And so let's just acknowledge the um, cognitive dissonance that occurs there. But as I was looking at this passage, the question I thought of was, um, do you ever get angry or agitated about the gospel? Right now, not just like uh, excited, agitated, like this is fantastic. Like the students who finally got a Bible and thought, I have the opportunity potentially to encounter the living God in the words of this text, right? And felt excitement. But um, when do we allow the truths of the gospel to actually agitate us and disturb us enough that we get angry? And it's difficult because in um, a largely relativistic culture where um, Belief is privatized, and it's nice that you believe that, but I believe something different, and we should just be able to ignore the fact that we have these differences and get along. Um, everything around us encourages us to say, it's fine if there's disagreement. But Galatians is actually a text filled um, and provoked by conflict. Conflict about what matters what the gospel requires and how we're going to live it together and how that actually then knits us into a kind of unity that's deeper and more profound than just getting along or living with our differences, but actually enables us to embrace our differences in a way that provokes and points to the power of what Jesus Christ is accomplishing and has accomplished on the cross. And that's why even though you started in Galatians, it's so appropriate that Good Friday and Easter kind of interrupted everything for a week. Because if you don't grasp what happens at Good Friday and Easter, Galatians seems um, obscure at best and unnecessary at worst. But when do you get agitated or angry about the content of the gospel and what it requires? Um, as most of you know, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and so our history is littered with these kinds of experiences. And I think back to the late 1940s, InterVarsity was founded here in the United States in 1939. And if you remember the 1940s in the United States for all that um, their movies and publications often talk about the deep nostalgia people have for that period, it was actually a very hard period in American life. Um, World War II had just started. If you were here in the United States, depending on the color of your skin, you had a very different experience of what America was like. Actually, we often still do have that difficult experience. But um, in the late 1940s, increasing numbers of black students were getting involved with our ministry. And there was this um, beautiful and excellent um, conference facility that we used to use here on the East Coast called the Victorious Life Christian Center. And so we had been sending students to, for weekend retreats and summer programming there for a significant period of time. And the conference director noticed that our population began to change and increasing numbers of black students were beginning to come in our general programming and he realized that they'd start showing up at his camp. And so remember, this is kind of um, mid to late 1940s. And so we called the president of InterVarsity, a man by the name of Stacy Woods, and said, um, we love having InterVarsity here. And we love the work that you're doing. We love students coming to know Jesus and following him more deeply. Um, we just want you to know um, that black students won't be welcome at our camp. 
Now, this sounds shocking, but in mid-1940s America, this was probably more common and actually assumed in any of the Christian camps and conference centers in the United States. And our president, um, Stacey Wood, said, well, this is a little shocking to me because, you know, you claim to be a victorious life director, yet you don't have victory over your racial prejudice. If you refuse our Negro students to come to these conference grounds, I'm going to blast your reputation across the United States as somebody who claims a victorious life but has no victory over racial prejudice. And the conference director said, you wouldn't dare. And our Australian-born president at that time said, I am so angry right now. You have no idea about what I'm about to do. And somewhat threatened and, frankly, bullied by this, the Victorious Life director agreed to let any university student come to the Victorious Life Conference, but we were the only group that was allowed to bring an integrated group of um, conference attendees to that conference ground for many more years. Um, because of that, InterVarsity's board passed a policy within um, 19, at 1948 that we would not use any conference site that excluded ethnic minorities and began at that point to do that. But it's a fascinating moment, isn't it? And it can seem like a distant moment in church history, 1948, though um, many of us in the room, I suspect, have memories of 1948. It's not that long ago. And it's still an active issue in the church today, not just about racial prejudice, though certainly that, but on so many other issues. Where are we tempted to trim the gospel to fit the culture a little bit more cleanly and nicely and ignore some of its um, harder and rougher edges so that it causes a little bit less conflict? Where are we likely to add to the gospel message and say that if you don't do this as well, you can't be welcome? in this church, in this community, at this conference center, in this program? What are the thorny edges of Christian belief that are core to the Christian faith that we wrestle with, that we don't like to talk about? How does the gospel anchor us appropriately, allow us to know when to have conflict redemptively, and point to the truth about what Jesus Christ has accomplished? It's not just an issue in 1948, it's an issue we wrestle with today. So, because we had the Easter break, let me remind you a little bit of what's happened in Galatians up to the point that we get to in chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 14. You remember, Paul introduces himself, and um, after a very quick greeting, he immediately jumps into, I'm shocked, Galatians, that you've so quickly abandoned the gospel. Right? This isn't the kind of, I love you, and things are going fantastic, I have so much to praise about you. Um, unlike most of his letters, Paul just jumps in, um, I'm astonished that you're so quickly abandoning the gospel. And he tries to remind them, this gospel that I've been given is the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, you have to know, I have not needed to authenticate this gospel with anybody, because this is the gospel Jesus has given me, and everybody I've talked to over the decades of ministry I have, um, acknowledges and knows this. So in Galatians chapter 1, he says, look, the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it um, by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then he says, look, 
The gospel message originates with God and not from a human source. I didn't confer with anybody else to receive this gospel, he says, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 1. This was given to me by Jesus himself. This message originates from God and not from a human source, and it doesn't come, he says, from the Jerusalem church. I only spent a very short amount of time with them, he says in verses 18 through 24, and they acknowledged that I had the gospel at that point. And it was three years after I began to preach the gospel. Fourteen years later, he says in chapter 2, verses um, 1 through 10, I went to the Jerusalem church again, and the pillars of the church acknowledged the gospel I had been preaching now for almost 17 years was indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ that they also had. Right? This gospel is from God. It's not from a human source. It didn't come from Jerusalem, and it certainly did not come from the pillars of the church who led the, um, the church in Jerusalem and around the world at that point. The gospel I'm holding you to, Galatians, he said, is the clear gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm astonished you've given it up so fast. And if this is the gospel, he says, what astonishes me is the behavior that I see in Peter that's described in this section that I see you living out right now in that same way. Because if it's the gospel and the gospel is being changed or abandoned, I'm going to confront that. I'm going to call you to come back to our Lord. So what's this confrontation that Paul uses both to authenticate his authority and the gospel and points to the problem that the Galatians seem to be wrestling with? Look again at chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Um, He says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the go- truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, part of what Paul is doing, of course, is saying, my gospel is so clear, I'll confront even an apostle, one of the chief apostles, one of the people closest to Jesus if he's wrong. That's how important this issue is, right? So that this is actually just an illustration of why he thinks the gospel is at stake, but it also shows a little bit what's at stake with the controversy that they're facing. So what was the issue that would cause Paul a well-known apostle who'd been doing missionary work around the Mediterranean basin to confront Peter, a leader of the church and the leader to the, of the mission uh, to the Jewish people. So Paul says, right, in verse 11, Peter, who was living like a Gentile because he was eating with them and fellowshipping with them, as we know from Acts 10, suddenly started forcing Gentiles to act like Jews before he'd be in relationship with them. You'll remember in Acts 10, Peter is fasting and praying, and this sheet, this vision appears of a sheet filled with unclean animals, and the Lord says to him three different times, Peter, take and eat. And every time Peter says, I am an observant Jew, you might notice, Lord, I don't eat things like this. And if you're Peter, part of what you might be wondering, of course, is if um, the Lord's tempting you. Right? Or are you being challenged to do something that you know is wrong? But three times it occurs, and suddenly there's a knock downstairs at the door. Representatives from a, Jew, um, a 
Roman centurion have come and they've said, we've heard something about this Jesus. We've seen it. We've had, our leader has had this vision and he sent us to you to tell us more about who Jesus is. Now, let's be clear. Peter had already started to violate some of the Jewish standards. He was living at the home of Simon the Tanner. And so, right, dead animal bodies were there. He was unclean. He'd already started crossing, but he thought, you know Jews like me should not go to the homes of people like you. But the Lord had been very clear with this vision, eat these unclean animals, so I'm going to go. And so he goes, and he goes into the house of Cornelius, the centurion. And Cornelius says, I had this vision, and some, the angel told me to contact you. I need to know what's going on. And Peter says, Cornelius, you know I shouldn't be here. An observant Jew would not be here, but the Lord has brought me here. And suddenly, because of Peter's boldness, right, and Peter's desire to follow God, the door to the mission of the Gentiles opens up. The gospel's able to go forward. And Peter says, you know, how can I decide, how can I declare unclean what God has declared clean? Come and know Jesus. It's this Peter. This Peter who had this life-transforming experience. This Peter who's repeated the story to the apostles in Jerusalem who've then said, this is astounding what the Lord is doing. The Old Testament prophecies of the nations coming to the Lord are coming to true in front of our eyes. Let's go reach out to the Gentiles. It's this Peter who, when he gets to Antioch, fellowships with Gentiles, eats with them. And when you eat a meal, right, in biblical times, it's not just a casual, let's have supper together, right? You're um, actually creating community. When I invite you to share a meal with me in biblical times, I'm essentially inviting you to my family. When I invite you to have a meal with me in biblical times, particularly in New Testament times, it's likely that we would share communion together as part of our normal meal, remembering Christ whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed for us. When I have a meal with you, I'm saying you are like family to me. And Peter had been doing that until messengers from James come and suddenly, and because of fear of the circumcision party, Peter withdraws from fellowship with those Gentiles. And he withdraws in such a way that he causes all the other Jews in Antioch, Jewish Christians in Antioch, to pull away from fellowship with the Gentiles. And Peter somehow seems to say, based on what verse 14 tells us, how, as Paul accuses him, how you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not a Jew, but you're still forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. It seems like Peter says, you know, it, it, I, I know I acted like we were family at one point. I know I was sharing Gentile meals with you, but... Unless you're willing to be more Jewish, I have to stop. You may have been family to me, but maybe not so much anymore. Jesus may have brought us together, but something is still keeping us apart. Now, let's be clear. The issue for Peter and for Paul was not that he was acting like a Jew to reach non-believing Jews and acting like a Gentile to reach non-believing Gentiles. Both Peter and Paul knew that that's what they needed to do to accomplish the mission. You enter the world of the people that you want to reach, right? So Paul could say, to the Jew I became a Jew and to the Gentile I became a Gentile, and everybody would have clapped and said, absolutely, amen. In fact, Many years later, when Paul returns to Jerusalem, he actually, actually in one of his missionary trips, he has um, Timothy circumcised 
makes Timothy more like a Jew in order to reach some of the Jews that they would like to reach. What's going on here is that Peter was trying to force Christian Gentiles to act like Christian Jews before he would fellowship with them. For the sake of mission, change your identity, Paul and Peter seem to agree, but for the purposes of fellowship, Gentiles should be Gentiles and Jews can remain Jews and Jesus Christ is to be central between us. In the community of Jesus, Paul argues, the only criteria for fellowship is what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. Nothing else should be able to divide us along those lines. And when you think of the ways that we divide and that the church is known for division here in the United States, it's clear this passage still has relevance. Now, most churches and most conference centers and most Christian movements don't talk about what divides us, but it's very clear as soon as you walk in the door what the criteria are. You can walk into a Christian gathering and realize if you aren't a Republican or a Democrat, maybe you do not belong. And I've certainly visited many churches, um, particularly when I was in college and um, graduate school and you were visiting a place where you thought, it's very clear what the pastor and the church agree is the appropriate political stance, and that's the only one to take. There's no disagreement nor discussion. We're going to assume that, and the church began to divide there. It's clear in most churches um, what's the appropriate ethnicity or socioeconomic class to belong to if you were to be a member of that church. Education level, any number of other things. And Paul says to Peter, Nothing should divide us as long as the gospel is central to us. Because what is at stake? The question that Paul essentially challenges Peter to is this. Did the death of Jesus, or was it Jewish law, that's the basis on which Gentile and Jews are brought together as a new people before God? Because if it's Jewish law, if Jewish law is the basis through which Gentiles and Jews come together, then absolutely Gentile Christians should become Jews as they become Christians. But if Jesus is the basis through which Gentile and Jew are brought together, then we cannot demand that Gentiles become like Jews before we engage in fellowship with one another. Essentially, Paul says this, Peter, you were right at the beginning. You came to Antioch and had fellowship with the Gentiles, lived like a Gentile, ate like a Gentile. That's what we're supposed to do together. What changed your mind? Why are you engaging in this hypocrisy, doing what you know not to be true in order to impress other people? Why are you leading other people like Barnabas astray? What are the non-central behavior, cultural um, assumptions and worldviews that you are allowing to distract from the centrality of Jesus and who we are and what brings us together, Peter seems to be asking. For us, the question probably is, 
do we ever think, feel, or say, you must believe in X or behave in X way for me to accept you as a fellow believer? Now, let's be clear why this was so difficult for Paul and also so critical to understand. Because who was Paul challenging at this moment? It's Peter. Now, we are filled with stories about Peter in the Gospels because Peter was so central to the early stories of Jesus, right? It's Peter who's one of the first people called to follow Jesus. It's Peter who denies him and is then recommissioned by Jesus. It's Peter who makes these bold statements and crazy promises that he can't live through, but it's Peter who also steps out in faith when he needs to. Peter is so key to our understanding of the gospel story. Peter is so crucial to the leadership of the church, and it's Peter that Paul confronts. It's Peter who originally opened the doors to the Gentiles. And it's, that's why it's so disturbing that Peter seems to be backtracking here. And Paul seems to suggest when the gospel is at stake, it doesn't matter the status of the person you may need to confront. The gospel seems to demand it anyways. Now, to be fair to Peter, Peter may have been responding to pressure from the Christians in Jerusalem, right? The Christians in Jerusalem were um, the most Jewish of the Christians uh, in the early church. They were the folk, many of whom were Pharisees who had converted to Christianity. So they cared about the Jewish law. They had lived within the Jewish law their entire lives. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, and so it seemed natural to them to continue to worship in the temple courts when they were permitted, to continue to keep Jewish practices where possible. And so Peter may have been responding to the pressure from the Jewish group within the church at Jerusalem. It's more likely, though, that even though these people came from James, you'll notice in um, verse 12 it says, when they arrived, uh, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group that throughout the rest of the book of Galatians, the, the circumcision group um, may just as likely refer to Jews who really were concerned that the Christians had given up things like circumcision as a requirement and therefore may be external to the church. And so what may be happening is Peter may be responding to threats of persecution in Jerusalem. Essentially, delegates from James would come up to Antioch and go, you know, the word is out that followers of Jesus are fellowshipping with Gentiles and not requiring the Gentiles to convert first. They're not requiring the Gentiles to be circumcised or to follow the laws of Moses. And that word has gotten back to Jerusalem, and it's causing all of the Jews in Jerusalem to turn against the church. We're now being attacked and slandered because of the way that you're living in your missionary efforts. Peter, so if you care about the mission to the Jews, and if you care about the status and health of the church in Jerusalem, could you pull back a little bit? Because it's causing a lot of pressure to us here in Jerusalem. So whether it was because the church in Jerusalem actually opposed this part of the Gentile mission, or whether the church in Jerusalem was being heavily pressured by non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem, what's fascinating is Paul doesn't even dignify the problem with an, a deeper explanation. Because he seems to say, where the gospel is at stake, it doesn't matter why you're doing it. 
where the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to bring together Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, into a single new body, even if it's a legitimate cultural pressure that you're feeling, even if it causes you discomfort, it does not matter. The gospel is supreme and more important than that. If we can't be clear on what brings us together, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then all those other things are actually distractions. And if I need to, Paul seems to say and does say, I will confront you, Peter. I will confront you privately and I will confront you publicly. I will gather the body together and demand, like he does in the book of Galatians, that the one thing that will be true between us, the one thing that will hold us together will not be cultural conformity. It won't be a shared politic necessarily. It won't be a shared way of worship or singing or talking or acting, it's going to be Jesus and Jesus alone. Because if it's not Jesus and Jesus alone, then really the Christian group is merely a really nice social group of people we thoroughly enjoy and is no different on a Sunday than a country club brunch. If the church is only the people that we enjoy or agree with, then perhaps we aren't being challenged sufficiently because until we're with people that we might disagree with, but with whom we share Jesus, until we worship with people that we don't necessarily enjoy, but we still share Jesus, right? If we actually do not hang out with people with whom we struggle, save for their relationship with Jesus, then the thing that holds us together will be social conformity enjoyment. And while that's delightful and wonderful that we enjoy one another, it actually allows the basis of fellowship to be something other than Jesus. If what holds us together is a particular political stance, then our witness will be no stronger than that political stance is. Right? If it's merely that we all come from the same background and enjoy the same things, then really what draws us together will not be Jesus. It will be our shared interest and activity, which is delightful when it happens, but something far less than the gospel actually offers us. The power of the gospel, Paul says, is that if Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection are central to who we are, then suddenly we can look at somebody and say, I disagree with you on so many things, and yet you are my brother and sister in Christ. I will spend an eternity with you celebrating our risen Lord. And I want to suggest that what the world longs to see and to know is not... Um, the social conformity or social niceness of the church, but the ability of Jesus Christ to unite people who profoundly differ with one another, but in humility recognize that the one thing that is true between them is Jesus. And what does that do if you know that Jesus Christ is the one who has brought us together? It begins to change the ways that we relate and interact with each other, doesn't it? Because if I know that Jesus has brought you to the same table that he has brought me, if Jesus Christ has saved you like he has saved me, then suddenly I have to approach the world differently. I have to approach you with a great deal of humility, don't I? Because Jesus loves you and has called you and has brought you into fellowship with me. So if we disagree, there must be something in your soul, mind, and heart that the Holy Spirit is also at work with, which I need to listen to and need to learn from. I may not always agree, but I approach with a level of humility because what holds us together is Jesus. And it's in that moment of humility, I think, that mutual learning and mutual change can occur. If Jesus is the one who has brought us together, then suddenly I listen to your life experience with a whole new set of ears. Um, 
Julian was telling us about the experience of what it's like to be a missionary in Iraq. Well, that's just an interesting story till I decide the Noonans are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then suddenly it isn't strangers who I might meet every other year at a short missions moment here at church. Um, But they are relatives who have a deeper bond and connection to me than even biological flesh and blood do. And then I think about what it would be like to be um, a 10th grader whose sister has now gone off to college in a distant country, and I'm alone in a compound that I, it's not safe for me to leave. And it won't just be a week, like during a missions trip, or a month, or a year, but several more years, perhaps, before I have the freedom to walk around safely. And my prayers begin to change. As you think about some of the racial tensions in the United States, it begins to change our conversation again then, doesn't it? Suddenly, I have to listen to the cries of the black church as it looks at the things that happen here in the United States and listen with new ears. This isn't happening to a demographic group that I may or may not belong to. It's happening to brothers and sisters of mine who on Sunday will approach the same God I do, come to the Lord's table in the same way I will, and with whom I need to grapple what is their life like and how will I hear it. I'll have to listen to the cries of immigrants, both documented and undocumented, and ask the question, what is the Lord asking me to listen to from my brothers and sisters? It will, have, it will provoke me to think about Washington, D.C., not just as this very odd cesspool or place of power, depending on how you experience it. And if you've ever been there and worked with people there, and I've been doing that more and more, you realize it's both at the same time, that there are brothers and sisters um, at Capitol Hill who are struggling mightily, and who don't just need my critique and don't need my scorn, but desperately need my prayer. From the richest of the rich to those whose names we will never, ever hear about. For people for whom their daily bread is literally the crust that they hope to survive on to the people who actually control whether wheat will appear in one country or another. If Jesus Christ is central, suddenly we are in relationship with them all. And if Jesus Christ is at the center, suddenly I can be in relationship with them all, not intimately face by face, but in a deep, profound way through prayer, sympathy, and then action. Paul seems to say to Peter, do not let otherwise good things, the good laws that have preserved the Jewish faith to this point that we were able to receive the Messiah, Jesus, distract us from the greatest thing, which is what Jesus accomplished on the cross, which lowered the hostility between people and between this united new people and the Lord himself. Do not back away from this, Peter. Because when you get distracted, Peter, by this, you lead other people astray. And this is probably what breaks Paul's heart, because you'll notice that one line in verse 13, the other Jews, the other Christian Jews, joined him in his hypocrisy, so that even by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. If you can lead Barnabas astray in terms of fellowship, something has gone desperately wrong, hasn't it? I mean, think about who Barnabas was. Barnabas is the deep encourager. Barnabas is the one who, when Paul came to faith and all the apostles were afraid, who's, we're not, he's going to be a mole, he's going to kill us. Barnabas goes, I'm going to be your sponsor, Paul, to the disciples in Jerusalem. Barnabas opens the door for them. It's Barnabas who trusts 
Um, John Mark, after he fails in that first missionary journey, he actually breaks fellowship with Paul over it and says, Paul, you talk about redemption, and somehow you aren't willing to give this young man a second chance. He failed once. The gospel demands a second chance, and we know eventually Barnabas was right, because toward the end of his life, Paul is hoping that that same young man that he wouldn't take on that missionary journey will come to him as he looks toward the end of his life. Even this Barnabas, whose generosity of spirit and openness of heart is so evident throughout the New Testament, was led astray by Peter on this. Paul says, it's so critical that you understand what's at stake. And because so much is at stake, if I have to, I will confront you. But I'm only going to confront you because so much is at stake. Not on the thousand of other issues that we may have a disagreement on, not on the billion of other things that we may have different preferences on, but where I will confront and where I will challenge both publicly and privately in the hopes of redemptive action will be the centrality of the gospel in the way that it affects us today. When we're clear about the gospel, suddenly we have the opportunity for great unity and witness and the possibility for redemptive conflict because while Paul doesn't tell the end of the story here, he just, he's mostly interested in showing how the gospel is important enough he'll confront an apostle, um, it seems reasonably clear, doesn't it, as you begin to look through the rest of the New Testament. The Gentile mission continues. Throughout then the end of the book of Acts, um, the church continues to make stride after stride and figure out how to better welcome and engage and incorporate Gentiles into the life of the church. Then you have the book of Romans outlaying in greater detail because they were struggling with this very same issue. Um, and Paul then has to explain, look, it's it's going to be justification by faith because it's not by the way we act that we come to Jesus Christ, right? Both Galatians and Romans are trying to address the same issue. So I have to ask, where has the centrality of the gospel either agitated you or angered you at the way that people do not live it out? Where have we too quickly succumbed to allowing social pressure, social ease, to define the limits of our fellowship, if not practically, then certainly spiritually. And I make that point in part because I want to acknowledge practically there's a limit to what any one geographically bound group of people can do. In fact, most of us will never travel the world to meet the other billion-plus Christians. It would be nice to try, but impractical. And in fact, for you to pursue your mission, you won't be able to reach everybody in Westchester County, much less northern the northern half of Westchester County. But if the gospel is true, it suggests we could go further than we have. If the gospel is true, it would suggest that um, missionary engagement with our culture and the welcoming of a broader range of Christians who differ from us in ethnicity and gender, socioeconomic location, um, cultural expression, are all actually not only possible and plausible, but actually a promise of what the gospel would allow us to be. There is no other name which can possibly draw men and women, slave and free, Jew or Gentile, black, white, Latino, Asian, native, etc., to a single place, relativize political identity, cultural expression, 
and still weld us together as a single body than the name of Jesus Christ. It's at the name of Jesus that every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. It'll be at the name of Jesus that people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue will be brought together. It's the name of Jesus that draws us into a single body. And so for Paul, when the gospel is clear, there's a profound unity that nothing else can provide. There's an opportunity for mission as we engage with humility and solidarity with people with whom normally we might disagree or feel discomfort. And when that happens, I think the world will actually stand back and marvel and say, not what nice people you all are, which is always true, but it must be the Holy Spirit that brings and binds you together. If the Holy Spirit can do that among you, I'd be interested in exploring how the Holy Spirit could invite me to do that too. And then the world really will taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I confess, um, even as I look at my own list of churches, I feel comfortable at um, brothers and sisters that I'm most likely to fellowship with. Um, It's so often narrowly defined by my own um, interests and um, my own needs. I long to be somebody for whom um, the most significant thing between me and another Christian is who Jesus is. So turn my eyes to Jesus. Draw me to deeper unity with those who share the name of Jesus so that I'd feel their pains, so I'd hear their voices, so that I'd learn from what you've entrusted to them, and that I would act in moments of fellowship and moments of advocacy in moments of um, prophetic speaking, as well as in um, my prayers, that I belong to this body, who hurts and groans, celebrates, um, and rejoices. Um, And then the world would see, you are the Lord, and you alone. Amen.